Welcome to the How Writers Write podcast, a show focused on inspiring and empowering you to become a better writer. Come along as we deconstruct the tips, routines, and motivations of your favorite authors. In the end, it's all about getting your story onto the page. Welcome to episode 91, How Lindsay Ellis Writes. In this episode, I get to interview a bona fide YouTube star, as well as a wonderful fiction writer. Lindsay is full of spunk and wisdom and this get down into it and work your butt off attitude that I just love. In this episode, Lindsay and I discuss how fiction overlaps with film, her journey to becoming a storyteller, and that age-old question that I'm sure everyone is wondering, why is making YouTube videos so dang hard? At least it is for me. This is a fun interview with one of my favorite quotes of all time from a guest when Lindsay said, ability doesn't come from nature, it comes from practice. There we have it, my friends, this entire podcast summed up in a single sentence. I want to take a quick moment to thank Lindsay one more time for this interview. And now, my friends, without any further ado, here is the episode with Lindsay Ellis. Welcome to the How Writers Write podcast. I am your host, Brian, and today's very special guest is Lindsay Ellis. Lindsay is the author of Axiom's End, an alternate history novel set in 2007, planned as the first book in the, now I'm, I'm going to work my way through this, Nomina series. Did I say that right? Nomina? Axiom's End was published by St. Martin's Press on July 21st, 2020, and entered the New York Times bestseller list as number seven, which is pretty amazing as well as appearing on the Los Angeles Times and Wall Street Journal bestsellers list. Lindsay was subsequently nominated for a Hugo Award for the Best New Writer. Congrats on that one. Lindsay's upcoming book, Truth of the Divine, will be published in just about a month from the recording date here, pretty close to when this episode will air. Well, um, about that. Uh, <laughs> October 19th? Did, did, oh, yeah, yeah. Yep. Like it just like I just got the notice a couple of days ago that it got pushed back thanks okay. to uh, supply chain problems and that. the ongoing plague. So. so so you guys will be able to grab Truth of the Divine as of right now on October 19th, 2021. So on top of all this, on top of being a writer, one, you are the first guest I've ever had who is also an incredibly prolific and active YouTuber. Over Hopefully one, the last. Yeah, over <laughs> 1 million subscribers, which I was like, holy smokes. Um, and I watched a bunch of your videos as I prepped for the interview, and they're all fantastic. Tons on the Lord of the Rings, which is, which <laughs> well, is always you. amazing. Good smattering of Star Wars, which is like my favorite film series, just because I grew up on Star Wars. So anyways, Lindsay, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, so... I want to start with a really selfish, this is an incredibly selfish question that we're going to kick this whole thing off with, which is why is YouTube and making YouTube videos so incredibly hard? And I'm only asking that because I've tried like seven times and bombed awfully each time. So why is it so um, hard? Can I feel like that, that would deserve, like you could make an entire podcast know, about right? that. Like an entire the series. truth is like it, that the reason for that has kind of changed consistently over the course of my, you know, um, 40 some odd years doing this. Uh, and and uh, it also kind of depends on how long you've been doing it. 
um, how big your audience is, whether you, you know, have uh, discussed semi-controversial topics, um, if you dare to, you know, suggest that racism or misogyny still exist, you know, stuff like that. Um, And like also the size of your platform counts. Like for me, I imagine why it's difficult would be very different from why it is for you uh, because there's always shittiness at every level, but like it's different at each level. Um, So for people who are looking to get into it, um, unless you're looking to use it just as a promotional tool, I would recommend against it. Don't do it. It's a bad way (laughs) to spend your life. Don't do it. Don't okay, do so it. so so you made me feel a little bit better now because, like I said, yeah. I, we, we've tried a couple times to to kick off a YouTube channel, and each time I watch the videos, and I'm like, God, these are awful. Like I cannot put these out in the world. They are so. Well, I will say this: it is bad. kind of like, um, <laughs> it is kind of like writing in a way because, right. like, you know, people kind of wrongly expect their debut novel, even if they have like written a lot before they get their first novel published. <coughs> Excuse me to you know kind of be like the great american novel out of the gate Mm -hmm. you know i'm Mm -hmm. going to be harper lee i'm going to be hemingway my first one is going to be as good as all my subsequent ones and that's just not realistic and um it's it's really hard mindset to you know get out of because even though logically i knew that was true going in i didn't want to believe it you know i i wanted to think that like i i would kind of start at at a par and then just kind of hit the ground running um but i think the same is true of like any medium like because I, I definitely had some people like that were not very sensitive and were just like, you know, you're not as good a writer as you are at YouTube. And I'm like, I've been Eesh. doing YouTube for 13 years. Eesh. I have published hundreds of videos. Yeah. I have published one novel. Well, now two. Uh, and right. it's just like, it, it's a learning curve, you know, it's a, it's a skill set. And so, um, you know, and that's true of any medium. So I think I see a lot of people give up right out of the gate because like their first one wasn't very good. Um, and it's just like, well, you just got to keep doing it and it may never be good. It just might not be a thing you're good at, but right. like, you're never going to get good if you don't do like a lot and do more than you think you need to. Yeah. There's so many parallels to the writing life in that. So, so let's, mm-hmm. let's talk about that because, um, you have a, uh, you know, successful YouTube channel, many millions of people watch it. You have, you know, videos with many million of you, m- millions of views. Um, what is it that attracted you? What was it that really drew you into storytelling, fiction storytelling specifically, and writing as opposed to using, you know, I know you have a film background as well. Mm-hmm. What was it about the form that, that you liked? Um, I don't know. I know I wanted to write novels even before I went to film school. Um, I remember at the time, like as I was applying to, because I got my master's. Uh, actually, it's funny because uh, I you 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 got your master's at NYU, right? I did, yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah I got my undergrad at NYU. <laughs> uh, but Tish, <laughs> yeah, fighting violence. <laughs> but they rejected me uh, as a grad student, oh, really? and I got shunted to USC. Um, <laughs> but like even at the time, I was my my kind of had at the back of my mind like very naively um that you know there's if, if you want to work in the arts there's money in the film industry mm-hmm. so I was I kind of had conceived that like I was going to be an editor that was going to be my day job while I tried to get published and even when I was like you know in my very first semester um when I was at USC I was kind of working with a mind towards that like I you know was trying to get like Harlequin novels published under a pseudonym I like focused on screenwriting mm-hmm. um and 
as for why novels, I, I don't know. I know I'm kind of like, I didn't want to focus on screenwriting just because um, I know too much, you know, it's <laughs> like, I know how screenwriters are treated and um, I feel like it's like, you can't tell really, can't, you know, if you're going to be a screenwriter, you're basically, uh, it's a very different artistic form. You're not, mm-hmm really in charge and you can't really tell a story that's yours uh, or anything that's very personal unless you do it at every level unless you're producer director Uh, and I didn't want to do that like I I didn't want to direct or produce Um, so I feel like if you just want to be a writer um, because the other thing about screenwriting is it is very collaborative where Mm -hmm. um, novel writing isn't Um, and it's not like I have zero interest in that sort of thing like you know I think if if I had the opportunity I'd absolutely do it but it's not the same thing as creating your own world and your own characters it's you know it's honestly kind of like my experience with YouTube right now which is like I have a staff I have a co-writer I never work on any I very or let me take that back I very rarely do anything by myself um on YouTube as opposed to uh novels which are very I it's the word isolate <laughs> it's very yeah. it's a very solitary endeavor so I guess it's kind of nice to have your you know feet in both pools such as it were but like it, it's not the same at all like it uh, it's a very different skill set and so when people yeah. ask like you know writing criticism and nonfiction, uh, how did that prepare you for writing prose i'm like not a lot i'd say on a, on a structural level it helps but like on a on a micro level on the you know flow and um just just you know the skill itself it's like they are completely different yeah what one of the things we've been exploring a lot on the show um just with different guests is how Every writer comes to storytelling, comes to fiction writing through a different background. Um, I interviewed somebody yesterday. They were a very successful lawyer, found their way into writing thrillers and you know legal thrillers, and and have you know had a very successful career writing fiction. I've had you know, doctors and all sorts of different people come from different backgrounds. And one of the things we talk about is how that background, some of the lessons that are unique to the background that they have taken and applied to fiction writing, right? And so I'm curious, as you think about your background as, you know, studying film, um, being in that world, are there some things that you're, you, you look back and you think, I learned this through the lens of learning film, and yet it is incredibly important and useful in the pursuit of writing fiction? Well, um, so... The thing about USC's film school is it is very, I almost kind of want to call it paint by numbers, um, <laughs> especially when it comes to storytelling. Yeah. Um, they are very, you know, hero's journey, act one, act two, act three. Um, but I honestly did find that really useful. And I still do, because I think whenever you're writing a story, it does, it is kind of organic and you don't really think in terms of what the structure is. Um, but one thing I've noticed is that like more and more like prose writing, novel writing, you know, classes and books and stuff like that are taking their cues more from the screenwriting side of things, which is more formulaic um, mm-hmm. than the mm-hmm. other way around. And I don't mean formulaic in a bad way. Um, so it, it was kind of interesting because, you know, you'd go take these classes and kind of realize that you had been following the formula without really realizing it, you know, mm-hmm. unconsciously just by osmosis, because that's how, you know, stories in Western 
uh, literature are told, you know, there's an inciting incident, there's right, a, right. a main tension, there's a, you know, the character will have a want versus a need. And, you know, sometimes you can get away with bending the rules a little, but for the most part, most, at least commercial fiction um, is going to pretty much follow like a Hollywood three act structure. Um, so uh, learning that I, I think was definitely helpful and, um, you know, kind of approaching it from the lens of a film critic. It like, I, I, I don't feel like being a film critic does not help you as a writer. Mm. Um, it helps you as an editor. <laughs> and I think it's like, uh, I remember when I was like really, really young, um, like in the fourth grade or something, I think it was, it was Gary Paulson who wrote uh, Hatchet, is that right? Um, I remember watching a video of him talking about how he used to, like when he first started as a writer, his favorite thing was writing the first draft and he hated revising, but the more he, um, the more, uh, experience he got, he was like, I, my favorite part now is revisions. Right, right. Um, and that's kind of how I feel like I, I hate writing first drafts. <laughs> it's like, it's like pulling teeth, but yeah, like, yeah. I, I find revisions like a lot more fun because like I can step away from it flush out my brain and then come back and uh, think about it like an editor rather than as a writer. Um, yeah. So that I think uh, has helped to coming from the, the back the film background, plus yeah. just watching um, a shitload of movies. Cause I feel like the content of my books are more influenced by film than literature. Yeah. Cinematic. Yeah. What, what it, what, one of the things we teach is to, to get to a first draft mm-hmm. kind of don't stop. Um, I think a lot of writers, rightly so they, they read a bad paragraph and they think boy i gotta change this paragraph because it yeah, sucks don't do that. <laughs> and it's like <laughs> and, all, and also like your first draft's gonna suck just yeah. own it live yeah. it love it live laugh love move and, on yeah and there's no quicker way to not finish a novel than to edit the novel in progress i mean that, yeah. that really is like the, i know one so the, many people who never finish a first right. draft of anything because they get hung up on like these mac micros yeah um because in my experience even when you write a chapter or a paragraph that you really like in the first draft nine times out of ten it doesn't make it into the final draft right exactly Um, and like you know it's kind of that's why it's really a bad idea to be focusing on prose and um uh you know this line or this concept or this passage that i really like and i really want to make perfect because it's probably either going to change or more likely it's going to be cut yeah, I totally agree. I, I, I one thousand percent agree with um with that sentiment. Just just get 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 through to the draft. It's gonna suck. Um, writing yeah. the draft is really hard. Reading your first draft is is, I think my least favorite part of the whole process is reading a first draft that I've written because I always think, my God, you, you, there is there is nothing salvageable in this. But mm-hmm. you know, if you can get through it, you know, cry a little bit, do do what you need to do to recover. Yeah, you it's, can it's edit funny because it. like. The other thing is like all of my first drafts, like half of the characters are named TK. Yeah. And, you know, it'll be like TK took TK into their arms yeah. and said, oh, TK, you know, it's just like, dies I, like, TK like, if, like, cause I'm writing the third, the, the third book right now. And if you did like a word search for TK, you'd probably find like hundreds. Right. Um, but yeah, it's funny. Cause like even my second book, which, uh, 
I feel like had a much more solid first draft than any versions of the first book did. Um, even after I finished the first draft, like I knew like that it probably needed about a 50 to 60% re- right. rewrite. Um, and that ended up being more or less exactly correct. Like the, from the first draft of the second book to the final draft of the second book, probably about 60% of it got rewritten. Uh, and when I say rewritten, I don't mean sh- the structure or the story changed. The story was always like the story never really changed. The structure never really changed. The way it unfolded changes. The actual prose itself changed. Uh, Some character motivations changed. Some personalities changed a little bit. Uh, Like uh, there's a secondary protagonist in the second book and in earlier drafts, he was kind of like a little more sinister and a little bit more of a creeper. And everybody who read it was like, I don't like this. This does not work. Uh, (laughs) um, And so, uh, yeah. 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 That, so let's, let's talk about that a little bit. That's a perfect segue to the next question on my list, which is um, what two or three big lessons you learned in between writing your kind of first published book. I'm sure there's, there's non-published books before the first book was published, but mm-hmm. what, what are some of the big lessons you've kind of learned in this process from getting the first book done to now, um, you know, your month out from the second bur- book being out in the world and published? Um, I feel like this doesn't really apply to everybody or most people even, but, um, I, you know, I feel like everybody's journey with imposter syndrome is different. And I remember even when the book was announced, cause like there's this cliche of the YouTuber book and, um, you know, I had, you know, some people that were like, oh, this is interesting. I can't wait to see it. But I also had a lot of people that were like, oh no, another fucking one of these, like, uh, wait, 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 is this a thing? Like, I, I'm not. YouTuber I'm book? Not, oh, yeah, yeah, it's I'm, a huge okay. thing. So, so, there's so a, you... there's, there are some Barnes and Noble that have sections just called YouTubers. Like, so YouTubers um, get big and then they make a, they write a book. Right. Yeah. And that's I mean, how the they same like... is true for like any influencers. Yeah, like, Instagram right. books are becoming a thing. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, it, and it's a lot of authors feel like it's unfair because usually when there's like a YouTuber book, it's like, a big deal it's probably by like one of the paul brothers or lily singh or something like that it's usually non-fiction um and you know it'll just be kind of like how to be a boss babe or something like that (laughs) um and uh these you know influencer books suck up a lot of um you know resources from like mid-list authors and fiction authors um but the truth is they are like printing money, you know, they are like, um, just it's such easy, uh, sells because influencers by the nature of their job are good at selling things. They're good at influencing. Yeah. Yeah. And so the thing about like YouTuber books is, uh, like it's just merch to a lot of people. And so a lot of people are going to buy it and not read it. Um, but they'll have it and maybe they'll have something for you to sign if they ever see you at a convention or something, if the plague ever ends. Um, (laughs) and, uh, um, So I definitely got like these kind of assumptions that like, oh, this is just another one of those like kind of easy money things. Because the truth is the vast majority of YouTuber books are terrible. Mm -hmm. And the ones that are fiction are very hit or miss. Um, Like I, I, a lot of times you'll see them uh, like, usually it's YA, usually it's young adult because uh, the people who tend to buy from YouTubers are uh, on the younger side. Um, And uh, they um and the ones that are fiction uh 
will either be like, you know, terrible and ghostwritten or by one of the Green Brothers. Huge stigma. So I was like already kind of having an uphill battle because there is this just kind of stigma and assumption that you're not a serious person. Um, And I kind of felt like that to go all the way back to your original question. That was how it felt was like, I felt like, um, yeah, obviously it is true. I would not have gotten the book deal if not for the fact that I had a platform. Uh, and, and like it kind of lit legitimacy, uh, the fact that I work for PBS. Mm-hmm. Um, but even so, it was like, you know, I, I kind of felt like there was some truth to it. And um, every positive review I got just went in one ear and out the other. Every negative thing I saw was like, this is, you know, it has to be true because it's mm. like the, you know, the hurtful thing. And between I, I it was like after I finished the second draft of the second book, I just kind of got over it. Um, and I think a lot of it was because like I felt a lot more secure in the second book than I did with the first one. I felt like it it ended where I like it the the cohesive the the cohesive whole felt more like um, what I wanted it to be than the first one ever did. Um, and mm-hmm. so I kind of, I spent a lot more time on it. I had a lot more people read it, uh, just to make sure that like my, you know, my instincts were correct. Um, and I also spent a lot more time on like the interstitials and there were, you know, uh, you know, I, I hired artists for this one and, uh, we spent a lot more time on like the design of both the cover and the interior. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I guess in, in a way, like I had more fun with it because I wasn't so hung up on, do I belong here? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because I think the do I belong here thing is really hard to like get out of um, mentally. Yeah. yeah. If, if, if there's somebody out there who, you know, they hear you saying these things and like, wow, you just hit the nail on the head for me. I'm feeling that deep inside this kind of imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. What kind of from, from this view, looking back, like if, if you could go back and tell yourself, um, something as you were feeling that imposter syndrome, knowing what you know now, what, what would you tell them or oh, what I would don't... you tell yourself? Let's put it that way. Oh, nothing. Cause I wouldn't have listened. Like, cause it's not <laughs> a logic. It's not, it's not, it's not a really, it's not a logical mindset. Um, yeah, sure. Cause I think the thing is like, there were, there was, there was, there were major stylistic differences between the design of the first and second book. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, part of that was just because, I didn't think up the stylism that I liked until after like the second or third draft of the second book. So it's not like I can go back in time and be like, ah, you know, like this is the way you want it to be. Cause it ended up being like a minor thing with the publisher. Cause the designer was very confused. You know, she was just like, I thought we were doing it. Like we did the first one, this is a series. And I'm like, well, no, but it sucks in the first one. And <laughs> just because it sucks in the first one doesn't mean they all have to suck because um, basically what I did with the first one was I uh, had this very, like uh, all of them have interstitials. It's sort of epistolary um, where like some of the chapters will be interspersed by like articles or emails mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, basically world building accoutrement and some of which actually moves the story forward um and in the first one I just kind of had like the excerpt from whatever it is and like a Chicago style citation at the bottom like it was a college paper uh because I didn't know what else to do and in the second one I was like I'd asked the designer I'm like can you make this look like the publications that it's from like can you make this look like a New York Times article can you make this look like a BBC or NPR or um 
you know, a Facebook post or, uh, uh, oh, I did the Facebook post. That was, that took forever because <laughs> I had there, I actually had to find a Facebook page from 2008 and completely rebuild it oh in gosh. Photoshop. Oh my God. To, yeah. It was, it was surprisingly difficult. I, I ended know. up using Obama's page, uh, when he was running for president and then like rebuilding it, um, oh in Photoshop. So it would be the correct DPI. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. So, just so you like wouldn't that. have listened to yourself. You, you, if 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 you had gone back and and had this conversation with yourself, say, hey, listen, I'm two books in now. I've learned a lot more. Here's the one thing I've learned. No, because I don't think uh, I don't think it's a logical thing. I don't think you can learn it by listening. Yeah. I think you just kind of have to learn it for yourself. You have to learn it through doing. You know, you kind of have to spend enough time doing it um, in order to feel secure in your own voice and your own vision, you can't just, you know, have someone from the outside tell you, because like, I had plenty of people from the outside telling me like, no, this is good. I really like this. And I would like, was just kind of irrational about it. I was like, uh, but here are counterpoints. You know, if you would give me a point, I would have a counterpoint. Like, um, there, I like, maybe it's true on, maybe it's not true for other people, but for me, it was just something you kind of needed to, you know, live for yourself and experience for yourself. Yeah. There's a strong belief there, right? Like there, there, there's a pretty strong belief that like, I don't belong. And like, mm-hmm. if you have those strong beliefs, it's evidence is kind of irrelevant. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You, you can see that in our world now, not, not to bring any politics. I try really hard not to devolve into politics. We're the show on writing and storytelling and we're storytellers, but you know, you can see on both sides, both, both sides of our political spectrum have really strong beliefs and they, they, they both, no matter what data is presented to either side, um, the beliefs trump the data. And it's kind of the same idea mm-hmm. with beliefs. You can, you well, can, yeah, yeah. You like I mean? humans are fundamentally, and we hate this about ourselves, but we are emotional creatures. Yeah, 99% exactly. of anything we do is emotion driven. Yeah. And this includes things that you have deluded yourself into thinking are logical data based, you know, <laughs> rational facts boys. Um, yeah. You know, because I think that's that, that's kind of the funniest thing to me is like the people who crow loudest about like rationality and facts tend to have tend to appeal to people's base emotions the most. Right. And somehow they delude. people. I think this, again, like it's true of any part of the spectrum is like they appeal to really base emotions like anger and fear. Like these are like deeply primitive emotions. Um, and uh, it works. And like. Yeah. Yeah, we works. basically rationalize these emotions. You know, we find ways to intellectualize yeah. like why we feel the way we do. And then we basically continue to, you know, pattern our behaviors based on our feelings, but that's just what it is. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I totally, I, I think there's, there's a really strong parallel here to the, the, the writing life and this idea that like your beliefs are going to drive a lot of what you experience. Mm-hmm. And so if you believe yourself that you're an imposter and you don't fit in the writing life, I, I don't believe I'm here. To, I'm good enough to write novels. I don't believe I'm smart enough. I don't believe I have the education. You, I mean, there's a laundry list of beliefs you can choose to believe. But if those mm-hmm. beliefs are really strong, um, you're going to have a certain experience. You're going to have a very strong belief and a very strong experience of that writing life. Whereas the inverse, right? If you can convince yourself of a different belief, either through new experiences or proactive, um, just you know, kind of proactive measures and say, hey, I do belong. I am a storyteller you can have an entirely different set of experiences. And it's just kind of interesting how much of our writing life is so founded in this idea of beliefs. Yeah. It's so powerful. Yeah. I mean, in my case, I think the important thing is exactly zero external validation 
changed my mindset. And I think people kind of think that, uh, you know, it was completely internal, you know, like, um, and I think people kind of, you know, they turn into like these emotional black holes where they're just like, if I get more validation and more validation from other people, then I won't feel this way. And then I'll feel better. And I don't, I don't know if that's ever true. Like, cause I think like, if you genuinely feel like an imposter, no amount of external validation is going to change that. Like it kind of has to be an internal process. Yeah. We, we teach this exact thing, but we have, um, this isn't a plug for it, but to plug it <laughs> since we're here, we, we, we teach this idea of how to rework your beliefs as a writer. Um, and one, one of our courses are in a community, just, just because like, at least from my perspective, you can be the best writer in the world. You can have the best prose. You can be the, the plotter sent by the gods to plot the best novels of all time. But if you can't bring yourself to believe that you you belong as a storyteller and you can't believe that you can finish there that's another big lift. I don't believe I'll ever finish it. A lot of people don't start writing because they say I don't think I'll ever finish it. They don't even believe that they'll finish. If you can't mm-hmm. get over those beliefs, your natural talent or just talent in general is meaningless. Cuz yeah, that story exactly. is never getting out. It I also think that talent is kind of a myth. I, I, I think that like, it's, you know, yeah. that's another thing that people kind of tell themselves and tell each other to think that you're like better, like innately better than other people. Like, Hey guys, talent isn't real. Um, <laughs> like right. natural talent definitely isn't real. Like, uh, I don't want to go all Malcolm Gladwell on you, but, uh, <laughs> like the, the evidence does, does kind of show that like people who work at the craft and do it consistently tend to be more successful and yeah. tend to, you know, be better at their thing than people who just like, well, my mother said that yeah. I was great at writing uh, Billy the Dog stories in the first grade. Yeah, I, I totally agree. This isn't professional athletics. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. like you, you need to be born with something special to make it into the NFL. Like, it's right, just, right, you right. just, you're not going to, you're not going to win. You're not going to be a middle, middle linebacker yeah. built like you me. can't, you can't be in the NBA <laughs> if you're four nine. Sorry. That's what I'm saying. It's just, it's just there's just realities there. No, it's, it's not, it's just the rules. Um, but, but I don't think writing follows that same pattern. I, I, I totally agree with you. I, I think so much of this journey, because what makes writing and storytelling so powerful is not necessarily your talent, but, but the way in which you see the world and combine your story with your own experience. And, and that's uh-huh. not something that's based on talent, right? That's something yeah. that's based almost on vulnerability. Yeah. And it's, and it's based on like, know? yeah, like, cause querying is right? vulnerable, um, getting rejected always sucks um and uh it it is just kind of a rat race and a lot of people like millennials especially like you know you see all these memes about like as a gifted kid blah 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 and i (laughs) but i think is like i because i i don't think gifted is a thing either and every person i ever say that to who either has a kid in a gifted program or was themselves in that gets like so upset and i'm like it's kind of like well iq is not a thing either um like i mean it's a thing but it's it's mostly worthless like uh intelligence is such such a complicated thing and there are so many different types types of intelligence that to single out some kids and to put them in special classes, like, Hey, you're more intelligent, um, is in a way kind of setting them up for failure. Uh, because these kids never really, uh, try at things they don't feel like they're naturally good at um like that was definitely like I took a long time as an adult to like get over this thing that I learned as a kid like if you're not naturally good at something then you're just not good at it and you never Mm. will be like it took me so like I was like in my mid-20s before I like kind of really started to learn that like um 
ability doesn't come from nature. It comes from practice. And so I feel like I wasted so many years, like, you know, in this like nineties garbage, like mindset of like, Oh no, you're naturally special, Mm -hmm. which just kind of tells you that like, if you don't immediately excel at something, um, you're just, you're bad at it forever. And it's really discouraging. And I think a lot of people, especially our age, uh, just kind of never escaped that mindset. And if you're, if you grew up in that, it's hard to get out of. I, yeah, I'm with you. I just wrote, I just wrote that quote down to, to, I'm going to make an Instagram post at some point about it. When this, when this episode goes live, ability doesn't come from nature. It comes from practice. Mm-hmm. I, I think is just so true. So, so we're, we're, it, it sounds as if you kind of based on your experience, you were in like the gifted smart kids yeah. class. I mean, and then later, but- <laughs> I, 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 I barely, barely made it out of each level, each rung of schooling until I got my MFA. By the time, oh, yeah. I, I, the time I, I got was- my MFA, I was, I was okay. Oh yeah. But, but like my, <laughs> no, my undergrad was, was 2.2 like, GPA. Like I barely I gotta- graduated undergrad. I got a C one time in all of K through 12. Um, and I I was grounded for six weeks. Oh my gosh. Like I I wasn't allowed to watch TV. I wasn't allowed to go outside. Like it was like, you like feel lockdown grounded. Um, so yeah, it was like definitely one of those where it was like, especially as an only child. So I had like all these expectations of like, you have to be better than your parents' generation because we are white trash and we need to prove to our white trash relatives that we're better than them. (laughs) We got to make Christmas about us. Yeah. That, wow. That is, um, that's a point we've never kind of brought up is this idea of shedding the, uh, expectation of natural ability that, that mm-hmm. I do think, I, I do think it's a good call out and this isn't to judge anyone's parenting style. I mean, I have two kids and like, I, I, I used to, I, I used to have firm beliefs about parenting until I had kids. And then I was like, everyone's got to figure this out on their own. Like it is hard to raise children. So it's not, it's not to judge anyone's parenting decisions, but certainly on your own experience to shed that idea and the, um, that like idea that, that if you're not born good, Right. It's not worth pursuing. And then there's this sort of like braggardliness that starts even like at six months where people will be like, oh, they're sitting earlier. That means they're (laughs) going to be gifted or, oh, they're talking at 12 months. That means they're gifted. Like, oh, they're, 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 you know, verbal at 18 months. Like, um, cause the thing is like, Hey, these things are not signifiers of, uh, later in life, linguistic or uh, ability. Uh, they're just how, like what, wiring comes online first in what kid Uh, but people like you know this is a thing like I just did this episode uh, on my YouTube channel about narcissism and uh, I think their like parenthood is in a way the the thing that triggers narcissism the most in Mm. people at least for like boomers and millennials are really bad about this because they um, turn their children into like uh, you know extensions of themselves and it's like my kid has to be the best because my kid has to be better than everybody else um but what does that do to the kid you know it definitely um it can make them turn them into narcissists sure but it also can turn them like most people just end up with like these weird complexes and unable to really pursue their dreams because they have these like locked in um beliefs that uh Mm -hmm. are from like basically pre-memory of like 
oh, you are special and you have to be uh, like the most special in order to make mom and dad proud. And if you're not, if you are not naturally good at thing, then uh, that is not your thing or you're a disappointment or you never will be good at it. You know, mm-hmm. it, it just, it messes with people. You know, parents don't let their kids be their own people. Yeah. Because uh, of yeah. all this just so competitive. I'm like, parents, stop turning your kids into like racing greyhounds. Jesus. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think, I think, I think in, in, in the writing life, there's certainly a lot of that, like, as we become adults and we get into this season where we want to produce work and, you know, we want to publish work and we want work to be out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know there's, there's a lot of, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there listening to this episode right now that are thinking like, wow, this is kind of hitting me between the eyes because yeah, I was the smart one. Um, mm-hmm. I was the gifted one. And, um, you know, I am the one now that struggles with um, the belief that because I'm not good at storytelling, which like spoiler alert, nobody starts off good. No, no. one. Mm. I've yet I've yet to interview a single a single author that said, "Boy, I was Knocked just good. I was just good. <laughs> I was damn good from day one." Like you just like, started I, typing and woo. Yeah, I want I easy. want that person to come on the show. I just I I want it to happen once, just so I can be like. I can't say that anymore, but like literally it's never, but in fact, it's almost always the opposite. Most people think they are the worst out of anyone they know when they first start, because, because we all start so bad. But Mm -hmm. if you have a belief that like, if you're bad at something, you can't get better. If you're not naturally good at something, you can't get better. Yeah. 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 And I think some people never get over that. I think the only reason I did. Yeah. The only reason I did get over that was honestly, because I like, that was one thing I got from USC. Um, was uh i i didn't ever really experience like rejection until uh nyu rejected me from uh their grad program that was the first time i'd ever really been rejected from anything like i yeah well i mean (laughs) nyu was like the only school i wanted to go to for undergrad so i applied to one school and i got into one school and then everything i applied to once i got into undergrad um the only thing i didn't get was uh when um uh, the, uh, arts and sciences, uh, theater program did cabaret. I auditioned for that. Didn't get in, but I was in the pit. That's how I learned how to play the accordion. Um, (laughs) but like USC is so the way they worked and I didn't even know this going in is you're not allowed to pick a specialization in the first year. No, sir. You have to learn everything. You have to, uh, take classes and, you know, have a pretty good working knowledge of like editing and cinematography and screenwriting and directing and producing. You have to do all of those things before you're allowed to start taking specializations in your um, second semester or your second year. And that just went against every instinct in Mm. my body, you know, because I'm like, no, I don't want to do cinematography. I'm bad at it. No. And it was just like, it it was just like torture having to do things like um, producing and cinematography that like, I just didn't have any interest in. And like uh just had such an inferiority complex uh, about especially considering there were some people um that uh you know did want to go into those things um and so having to do that being forced to, to yeah. go through that and like get out of your comfort zone and learn that like okay no this isn't about like your natural ability you know that was what really kind of got me out of my rut and like you know, made me, uh, you know, 
forced me to actually pursue writing um, among many other things. And I think a lot, like say what you want about USC. That's why I I do feel like they are the best film school for that reason. Like none of the other film schools, uh, at least none of the other major film schools um, force you to (laughs) spend a lot of time in specializations that you don't have a lot of interest in because their attitude is that's what makes you a good filmmaker. You know, like is you have to understand all of them in order to do any one of them. Well, Mm. I, 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 I like that. And, and, and I'm, we got to wrap, we got to wrap up and get to the final five because I just looked down at the time and I was like, Whoa, Holy mm-hmm. guacamole. This, this like it's a lot by. of highly emotional questions. Ooh, <laughs> this really flew by, but, um, but, but let's, let's, let's wrap this up. I mean, like, I think the moral of the story here is to be a writer, you're probably going to have to be comfortable with things you're uncomfortable with. Mm-hmm. How would you phrase that? Uh, I like that. <laughs> I think, um, you know, to go back to the USC analogy, you know, yeah. being a writer isn't any one thing, especially in fiction. Like, yeah, you have right. to know story structure, you have right. to know prose, you know, have to know character development, you mm-hmm. have to know world building if you're writing in genre, or even if you're not. Like, yeah. there are multiple skills uh, that come with being a fiction writer um, in the way that the, is true with being a filmmaker. And so maybe you don't have to excel at all of those things, but you have to have a working knowledge of all of those things. And you have to accept that you're not going to excel at every single one of them. I can't think of a single writer um, that I think is like at top of the class at every single one of those. Like right. I think some might be like eight out of 10 and all of them, but like for the most part, someone is like, everyone is going to have like their one thing that they like are better at than others. Like for me, I feel like I, uh, I, I'm good at structuring things. I'm good mm-hmm. at like the big picture. Um but I always felt like the uh, like actual prose and especially action scenes, ironic since I write like thrillers, um, were my weakest point. Um, and so uh, like actually having to write those makes me really uncomfortable. Yeah, um, yeah. But like, I got to do it because that's what yeah, I plan right, and it right, needs to be right. there. So uh, I think the hardest thing for a lot of people is just accepting that um, you uh, aren't going to excel at every aspect of being a fiction writer. And you just kind of have to push through the things that make you uncomfortable because they got to be there. Right. And you got to be okay with the fact that, you know, maybe you aren't going to like have the most, you know, beautiful florid prose, or maybe your uh, structure isn't going to be as tight or fast paced as somebody else's. Um, Cause like that is just not the story you wrote. That's just not the type of writer you are, but you just got to push through that discomfort. Mm, I love it. I love it. All right. Well, Lindsay, um, I could clearly just keep talking and talking and talking to you, but in the interest of time, I am going to transition us to our final five questions. So I ask these exact same questions, every single guest. And, um, I always give this kind of same speech before I ask them and I say why. And the reason why is two reasons. Number one, I like it and it's my show. So I do whatever I want. Second reason is because a big part of the show, really one of the core ideas of the show is that as writers, writing is really specific because each writer is going to have to find the way in which they create and no two writers are ever going to be the same. How, how they create and how they get words on the page is incredibly individualistic pursuit. And so my hope is that when you hear all these answers, people listening to these episodes, they are every single writer giving a different set of answers. You realize there is not one way. You can't copy anybody. You have to do this on your own. You got to do the hard work of figuring out how you create. And I hope these answers kind of illustrate um, just how dynamic that can be, just how varied it can be. So 
all that to say, here's question number one, which is, what is the one word that best describes you? Um, clearly, because that is the word I use way too much in every first draft. <laughs> clearly. Okay. Or basically, clearly and basically. Okay. Those are, that's like, whenever I'm starting to get into draft two, I, that's the first thing I yeah. need to do a word search for. You do like finding followed by just, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love it. I've never had clearly. I love it. Okay. Question number two, uh, if you had to pick a spirit book, right? So this is a book that if you died and you are able to be reincarnated as a book, it's a book that like kind of best embodies who you are, who you want to be. What book would that be? And it can't uh... be one of your own. It can't People be are gonna hate that's me. that that's the other asterisk there. It's gotta okay. be okay. Uh go ahead and cancel me for it. Uh <laughs> Speaker for the Dead by Orson Scott Card. Yes, I know he's a bag of dicks, but uh that I I re- like that book probably influenced me more than any other book. So yeah. Sorry he sucks. It just yeah. is what it is. It's okay. It's it's I I, I don't think we should. I, I don't yeah, I think it's okay to like books, even if maybe the person wasn't the most savory of characters. But yeah. Okay, question number three. Is there a specific tool, and it can be anything at all, pencil, software, chair, coffee, tea, cigarettes, wine, beer, anything that you absolutely must have to write? Scrivener. This is a Scrivener fan club on yeah, the show. I, so. I can't, I don't understand how people Agreed. write anything longer than like a novelette yeah. <laughs> without Scrivener. Like, especially yeah. like the type of books I write that have so many, um, uh, interstitials, interludes, yeah. uh, part headers, um, different points of view. Uh, I'm like, how do people like, cause a lot of times I will just rearrange like chapters or things like, how do people do it without Scrivener? Like Scrivener makes rearranging and uh, categorizing and keeping track of where you are so easy. I just don't understand how people do big projects without it. I totally 1000 million percent agree. I, and, and I leave room for this idea that maybe some people it's not the best fit. You know, like maybe if you really don't like using software and you like the simplicity of like word or whatever. Um, but I think it's the best. Okay. Question number four, kind of touch on this, but I'll be answer, interested to hear how you answer it now. How do you deal with the constant ups and downs of the writing life? I don't know. Um, uh, I, I feel like it changes every time. Like, uh, like for the second book, sometimes I would just not be feeling very inspired. Like for the first draft, it was, I banged it out really quickly. Like it's mm-hmm. a 160,000 words. I think I wrote the first draft in two months. Um, and, uh, you just kind of had this dragon energy that was just like, yeah, go, I'll be writing like five or 10,000 words a day. Um, and then other times, like even in revisions, I just wasn't feeling it. And I would just kind of, you know, like, well, I guess I'll work on other things and wait for, you know, the dragon energy to return. And, um, uh, sometimes it would, and sometimes it wasn't like for the third book, I haven't had the dragon energy at all, like Mm. not even once. Um, and so it's just been kind of like in cases like that, just have to sit down and like, okay, we're doing this. We are getting like, (laughs) eight x number of words or in case of revisions we're doing x number of chapters before uh like bed or whatever um and in that case you just kind of have to force yourself to do it and um 
you know, so I, I guess it just depends. Like, I, I hope the dragon energy returns, but like, you know, when it's not there, it's like, but you know, at least, especially in my case, I'm like, well, I am on a deadline and I'm already yeah. really late for the third book. And uh, like, you know, I've got other people, you know, in the, in the pipeline, like my publisher and my agent and they're waiting for me and they're waiting to get this done. So it's just, it's gotta get done. You gotta do it. Right. Yeah. All right. Question number five. And our last question, if you could give one piece of advice to new writers out there, what would it be? Uh, basically, uh, you know, what we were talking about earlier, which is that you're not going to excel at every single aspect mm. of being a writer, which means you have to push through the parts that make you uncomfortable. And, you know, unless you are a huge flaming narcissist, um, <laughs> And, you know, sometimes huge flaming narcissists do very well right, uh, right, as, as novelists. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about that, but yeah. <laughs> they yeah. some people they do. I'm not going to name names. Jonathan Branson. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm kidding. We're best friends. I love him. I'm sure. Never, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's just like pushing through, uh, you know, the discomfort of things that like either you're not great or you feel like you're not great at, you know, you might be fine at it. Um, is kind of the hardest part, but you know, it's like also kind of the most necessary because if you don't do that, then you're never going to get into a workflow. And you're never right. going to get anything done. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I hear. It. Okay. Lindsay, where uh, you're obviously very active online. Sometimes I ask people this question and like, where can people find you online? And the answer is nowhere, but for mm -hmm. you, where, where can people find you online? Where are your major haunts? If people want to dive into you and your books, where's the best place to start? Um, you can, uh, on YouTube, I'm, uh, Lindsay Ellis, uh, Instagram, uh, name brand Lindsay, uh, Twitter is a garbage pile and no one should be on it. <laughs> so don't go on Twitter for any reason. Okay. So Instagram and on YouTube, do not go look for Lindsay on Twitter. Yeah. Twitter is bad. That's another thing I've never, I've never been able to do YouTube and I've, I've tried like 10 times to get into Twitter and I just can never quite get that good stay pure get off stay get off safe. get off the ground i know stay safe yeah. um well Lindsay, thank you so much this has been such a fun interview um i love your spirit and your openness and just the energy you bring it's it's really infectious and i appreciate it and just the, the vulnerability in what you said so um thank you so much for showing up i know so many people are going to hear this and be like oh she spoke right into my heart so thank you thank you well i, I hope i helped at least somebody break out of their uh I guess writer's block or whatever is blocking you at this moment. I have no idea you did. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And I want to say a special thank you again to Lindsay for her time. If you haven't yet, please check us out on happywriter.co. There you can join our writing community take some awesome free challenges, dive into free live craft courses, and so much, so many other cool things. Also, check me out on Instagram. It's just happywriter underscore co. I want to say a special thank you to all the listeners out there, and I hope you have a wonderful week of writing.